How to describe memory. It's like a landscape where snow has fallen. At first, the surface is white and pristine, but as time goes by, people trudge across the field and leave footprints. Then a cart goes by, leaving parallel tracks, and then a car drives along the lane, leaving tire marks. Then the scene gets busier. Children on bikes on their way to school, women going shopping, and so on, until the surface is crisscrossed with memories of what had happened. The analogy for Alzheimer's disease is that all of the tracks get intertwined and mixed up and confusing, and then it all starts to melt. We live on planet Alls, which is a different planet to Earth. You may think when you see us walking down the street that we look normal, but we are not. We are actually on a different planet. On our planet, the normal rules do not apply. Everything is unpredictable. Anything can happen at any moment. Those are the words of today's guest, Jack Cohen, the author of Life on Planet Alls. This episode is brought to you by Family History Film. Visit myfamilyhistoryfilm.com to find out how they can preserve your family memories in a fascinating documentary film. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those caring for a loved one with memory loss. Welcome back and thanks so much for joining me. Before we jump in with my conversation with Jack, be sure to check out our brand new revamped website. There are lots of articles, resources, and even recipes. More recipes coming soon. I'm still working on that page. I hope you enjoy it. If you have any suggestions, feel free to email me. And now, on with the show. With me on the podcast today, all the way from Israel, is Jack Cohen. He is the author of the book, Life on Planet All. So thanks for joining me, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're going to talk about Jack and his wife and some definite caregiver tips, but we're also going to have a little bit on the difference between caring for a loved one in the United States versus Israel. So why don't you start off by telling the story of you and your wife, wherever you would like to start is fine. Okay. Well, we, we were both born in, in England, in London. We grew up in London. Um, uh, I actually came from the east end of London, which is like equivalent to the east side of New York, which was a sort of very Jewish area when I was a child. And um, we, we met teenagers, basically, and uh, we got married pretty young. I, was, I went to uh, Queen Mary College in University of London, which was fairly close to where I lived. And then I did a PhD in Cambridge, we went to Cambridge. We had a wonderful time in Cambridge. I was, uh, I did my PhD there in chemistry uh, with a Nobel Prize winner, uh, Lou Todd. And it was an, a, a fantastic experience, you know, a really life authorizing sort of experience. And um, then after that, I got a grant from the Science Research Council, a fellowship from the Science Research Council of the UK. And I chose to come to the Weizmann Institute in Israel. So when we would, we had a, our first child, she was like a month or two months old and we flew to Israel. It was our first flight in 1964. And we came hmm. to Israel and spent two years in Israel. And that was also uh, you know, such an experience that 
we always wanted to come back. So at the time, it was sort of impossible to get any sort of positions in Israel because it was it was like a small agrarian country then, you know, in, in the sixties. And so we we left, and I got a I got a job as a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School. And I think I've heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then. Um, you know, my wife was with me all the time and we had a wonderful life. Uh, we had a second child. He was born in London on en route to, to the States. He now lives in California and my daughter lives here. And actually she's living in the house with me and her husband and daughter here at the moment because their house is undergoing renovations. It's just up the street. So uh, then we, we came back to Israel in... I, I worked at the National Institutes of Health, National Cancer Institute, for 22 years. And then I was a professor at Georgetown Medical School for five years, I think it was. And then we decided, since our children were grown up and had left the nest, and my wife didn't like the, the weather in the winter in Washington, uh, we decided to move. And it was a sort of choice between California or Israel. And since uh, my daughter had already had two children here. So my wife wanted to be with the grandchildren, understandably, so we came here. And also we, we had a commitment, you know, we, we, we had lived here before and we were Zionists in a sense. We, we supported Israel strongly. So we came here and we fitted in. It, it was relatively easy. Having lived here for two years when we were younger, you know, it was pretty easy to to uh, adapt and and uh, my wife spoke some hebrew i spoke some hebrew so you know we we fitted in and we lived uh we moved actually into a place called natanya it's a very nice seaside resort just north of tel aviv beautiful little town and we we lived there and i worked at the at tel Ashomer hospital uh which is the sheba medical center which is the largest hospital in israel it's a government-run hospital. And I was the chief scientist there, and we had a very nice time. Uh, and everything was hunky-dory, as you say, until uh, around 2011, um, 2010, before that, my wife started showing indications of something being wrong. She, she would forget things. She would do strange things, and she would not remember things and so on. And it got to be, came to a point where we, we went to, we were referred to the psychogeriatric center at Ichilov Hospital in Tel Aviv, which is very nice. It's a, they give you free, free um, um, uh, diagnosis. They, 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 they do testing, they ask questions, they very professional, and then they give you a diagnosis. And that they diagnosed that Nami was had uh, Alzheimer's, and um, so from then on, it was a question of sort of facing the fact and dealing with it. And uh, you know, then many things happened. You know, there were many incidents and things that I, I wrote about in my book. Is is my actual book, Life on Planet Owls, which is available, by the way, on Amazon. And it tells the story of how I dealt with it. And, and the title actually comes from a discussion we had. So I joined a caregiver's group 
had our English-speaking club in, in Israel. There's an English-speaking club all over the country called the Association of Americans and Canadians in Israel. And in Netanya, there's a particularly big, active club, and they had a caregivers group meeting once, once every two weeks. So I joined it, and it was a very good environment for me, very good exchange of people felt very much that they could release their feelings. Sometimes they cried, sometimes they laughed, but you know, it was, it was very good. And um, during those discussions, I, I, I happen to say, it seems like we're on a different planet, that we are living in a, a, like a different, a bubble, a different planet from everybody else. And nobody really quite understands what we're experiencing. And, and we can't really relate to other people because we, this is all, all consuming for us. That so that's how true. I came to, to write that book. Now, as a scientist and a medical person, what, how did you react to the diagnosis? Well, I'm not a medical person in, in the sense I'm, I'm not a, an MD, I'm a PhD. And so I'm a, a medic, biomedical researcher. And, you know, at first I reacted, I think a lot of people do, before the, before the actual diagnosis, I reacted kind of angrily because I thought my wife was doing things which were kind of stupid. You know, why would you keep buying toilet rolls? I mean, I know in corona, coronavirus times, they're, they're scarce, but she would come home with a, a big bag, a, a, a package of toilet rolls every time she went shopping until we had 12 of them on our balcony. And I said, don't buy any more. And sure enough, the next time she went shopping, she would somehow in her head, she had the idea that we needed toilet rolls. And even if she wrote a list, I said, write a list. So she wrote a list and then she would either forget the list or she would take it with her and forget to look at it. Or even if she looked at it, she would still buy toilet rolls. <laughs> I've, I've read recently why people are quote unquote hoarding toilet paper yes. during this pandemic. And it's part of it is it's like this feeling of needing to be clean and cared for. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like a subconscious psychological need yeah. for cleanliness. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, if with her mind not being the way it, we think it, it should, should be, be. Yeah. Um, which is not really the better term. Right. I'm wondering if, if there was such, like she knew something was wrong and that was like its manifestation of, of showing that something was wrong. Cause I, I read that on your notes. I was like, that's funny because that's yeah. what people are doing now. Yeah. yeah. And oh. I laugh cause my friends yeah. buy toilet paper every time it's on sale. So they had plenty when this whole thing started. Yeah. But it's true that she was holding it but she didn't remember that she was hoarding it. So she would each time buy another package, you know, and it wasn't just toilet paper. We had, I, I remember finding eight open jars of jam or um, what do you call it? Uh, conf, no, uh, uh, what, what do you call jam? You know, um, jam or jelly. What? No, no, jelly, kind of jelly. You, yeah. In America. Jam has got pieces of fruit in it and jelly is smooth. Oh, I see. That's the difference. Well, mostly jam. We, we, we had eight open jars of jam in our refrigerator. 
all the same flavor? No, different, different. But they were all, you know, sort of there and they were taking up space. And I said, you know, don't open anymore. And, and she would keep bringing new ones and opening new ones. You know? So this, this, these were the kind of manifestations when I realized that she had some serious problem. And then the, the, the next thing was that she couldn't cook. She lost the ability to remember how to cook. And so she would make a dinner, let's say she would put something on a plate and put it in the microwave and randomly you know, dial in numbers. She didn't remember. So one day she dialed, she put in, uh, she, she put um, a meal in there for 12 minutes. And when it came out, it was like hard leather, you know? And I, you know, I got angry, like, you know, sometimes men get angry, you know? And I said, why are you doing this? You know, it's, you're wasting the food. I can't eat this, you know? And then the realization dawned that I was the one who was being stupid because she couldn't remember. You know, I said, you know, you should put it in for one minute or two minutes or, even up to four minutes, but 12 minutes is going to destroy it. But she just couldn't remember. Well, then, it's interesting because like, as my mom progressed, my dad was a horrible cook. Yeah. And I think he tried to allow her to make meals as long as possible because he was really bad at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I was the same. It, it got to the point where it was like, in, and this is not uncommon, especially for seniors that are living alone or just pairs and maybe they don't have family close by. But when you think about the number of steps just to make a sandwich, yeah, and you got to get all the stuff out of the fridge and then you got to assemble it and, you know, cut it. And it's a lot of steps and it's like, exactly. It's, and I think yeah. cooking is one of the things that goes quickly because it's, it's not complicated. Well, I mean, you can do complicated stuff, but even basic recipes yeah. are multiples of steps and you have to time the steps and, yeah. you know, it's not just a, I mean, although throwing something in the microwave is pretty easy, yeah. but, <laughs> but as you learned, it's not true. so easy. It's true that everything that requires steps, she couldn't do. Like, for example, if you, you think of, um, of, of putting on your clothes in the morning, you have to go through certain steps. You have a shower, you wipe yourself. You couldn't remember which steps to do, you know she would forget to wipe herself. She would forget, mm. she would refuse to have a shower. She would put things on backwards or upside down or inside out, really just completely randomly. And sometimes she would put on five sets of underwear, you know, and, and two or three is completely random. And so I had to, so some years, a couple of years after she was first diagnosed, in the Israeli system, um, what happens is you apply for a foreign caregiver because most of the Israelis don't do that job. The foreigners, you know, and usually Filipinos or Indians are the usual ones. And so um, you have to, you, you have to be um, tested or, or vetted by the Ministry of Health and they decide whether you should have, could ha uh, whether you justify having one. And then there's um, a nurse from the municipality that comes and checks you every few months. And if they decide that you need help, then they will uh, recommend that you get it. And then they will give you a certain number of hours. And so the hours that you 
can have somebody for is then you can apply for somebody and they bring them usually either somebody who's already in Israel or somebody they bring in. In our case, they brought in uh, somebody. And uh, she was a Filipina, very, very nice girl. And she lived with us. Uh, this was like a few years after she was diagnosed first, by the time it had got really serious. But she, uh, because Naomi, my wife Naomi, I should have mentioned her name, she didn't want to, she d wouldn't allow this, this um, caregiver to help her with intimate things like undressing and dressing and things like that. She would not let her. So I had to do that. So it defeated the purpose to some extent. On the other hand, you know, since I, I, I hated cooking and I couldn't cook, the, this, this girl did all the cooking and looked after us and did all the, she looked after my wife's medication and all that kind of thing. And eventually after a year or two, they gave us the maximum number of hours, which is 18 hours, which means basically 24 seven, um, that they can live in the house in, in with you with, for 24, uh, 24 seven. And they, they're required to be given like two hours every night off at least, and, and one, one day a week off, which usually, usually Saturday. And, um, and, and so, you know, and, and she, she lived with us for, I think, five years. And she helped, helped us a tremendous amount. But I had to bear the brunt of looking after my wife in detail, like an everyday things. Um, my daughter used to come up once a week uh, to spend a day with us. So, you know, she would help and she would help, help her mother to remember her, you know. And they used to go out and walk around and do shopping. And, and the, the, the carer, the Filipino carer, whose name was Sally, she also would take my wife around to the stores and to shopping and so on. And, you know, so we kept her occupied and it worked pretty well for, I would say about five years we were in that sort of situation. And then it sort of got worse. And so then we decided, uh, I retired and we moved down here to Beersheba in the south from that we were living in the Tanya north of Tel Aviv. We moved down here, it's two hours drive, it's not that far. And my daughter, the reason we moved down here is because my daughter's here with her husband. Her husband works at the Ben-Gurion University, which is in Beersheba. So, so we came down here and we th I thought this would be you know, a much better situation because my daughter could help me as well as the caregiver being here. But uh, after a few months, we realized it was getting worse. And then after eight months, we came to the tipping point. I came to the tipping point and my, luckily in a way, my daughter was here because she could agree with me that we got to the point where we had to institutionalize my wife. We had to put her in a home and she is in a home with a locked Alzheimer's ward. And um, at the moment, because of the coronavirus, I can't visit her. But I was visiting her every day for, for like a year and a half until the coronavirus started. And, um, but the nurses there are very nice and they do uh, con contact us on smartphone and we see my wife and we talk to her, but she doesn't, she doesn't really understand it. You know, she sees us, sometimes she says hello, but she doesn't understand whether, you know, she can't comprehend 
whether we're there or not. You know, I don't think she fully understands what this phenomenon is. So that that's the sort of situation. Yeah. I well, you so the tipping point was because she was getting combative, right? Yes, very aggressive. Yes. Yeah, my mom got the same way, and I think with the smartphones. Yes. Because I have my mom always loved dogs. That was one of her stories. I've had dogs all my life, blah, blah, blah. And I would show her, I would try to show her cute pictures or little videos of my dogs on my phone and it didn't register. And so I've been suggesting to the care homes that that I deal with, my moms and others, Mm -hmm. that they use smart TVs so that when, you know, your wife or my mom is are looking at us we're more like life-size because my mom's visual processing was shot yeah that, that's a very good point I, I i think that's a good i i may sing home too i think that's a very good idea because even a, they a larger ipad would help yeah they don't register that you're a person there you know anyway so what happened was that she got very aggressive and there were times when, uh, of course, when we were in Natanya, there were times, a few times when she got lost and we didn't know where she was and we were frantically running around and calling the police and so on. One time, I don't, I don't know how she got there, but she got to a school and outside there was a group of girls who were getting ready to go home. And so they, she asked them, you know, she did, obviously they realized she was completely lost. So they took her in a, in, a, in a cab, a taxi to our house. Luckily, oh, she good. remembered where it was. Or, she, or did she have, she had a wrist, uh, a, name, a name tag on her wrist by then. I'm not sure. But I, I had to get that for her. And another yeah, time she, she walked in the wrong direction and she was like a mile down the road in the wrong direction. And I, I stayed home. We called the police. The police said, stay home. And the, the carer went out looking for her and she kept walking in the wrong direction and she found her eventually. So, you know, these things happened. But then when we were down here and also before that, she had this thing a lot of people do about, I want to go home. And we would say, you're home already. No, this is not my home. It looks like my home, but it's not my home. And she would go to the door and she would bang on the door and keep the door, you know, oh. and, and it was so difficult. And so... Uh, we took to just taking her out for a walk, walking around the block, coming back, and she would accept it. Yeah, I never had to deal with that with my mom, thankfully. Yeah. And she lived in her home for two months shy of 47 years. So I was terrified that she would, you know, I, I want to go home, I want to go home, which is very common. Yeah. Because when we moved her to the memory care, mm-hmm. she... It was so funny. The day before she said, I was telling her, well, we're just going to, it's just temporary, which was sort of true. And I said, because there's some things that need to be fixed up in your house. And so we're going to do that. But you, they had a, um, it looked like this roof had leaked and there was a big stain on the ceiling. And so I said, see, it it was large. I'm pretty sure she could make it out at that point. And so I kept telling her, it's just, it's just temporary. No, we're, you're not selling my house. No, we're not going to sell your house. And the day before we moved her in, she looked at me, complete clarity on her face. And she goes, and you're not renting it out either. And I was like, oh, whoopsies. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very concerned that she would not 
acclimate to the new living yeah. environment, which it did take about six to eight weeks, which was rough. Yeah. But one of the things I've learned is when people are at home and they're saying, I want to go home, I want to go home. They very well may be looking for a feeling of safety and comfort and the thing you would probably get when you go home. Like we've, we've been traveling maybe yeah, a week, yeah. two weeks, and it's like, oh man, I can't wait to get home and have my own couch, my own bed. I'm you know, pretty, even though you're loving where you're traveling, there's still sure, that feeling. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she was talking about her home when she was a child. That's pretty common because too. Because I think she was thinking of her home and her original home. And one of the funny things was when we moved here, this is, we were in an apartment in Natanya here. We are in a, a one uh, level sort of, you might call it a bungalow or a, I'm not sure. It's a joined along the street. I'm not sure what you call it. Uh, you know, it's con connected a whole series of them uh, along a lane. There's no cars here, it's just a lane. And, um, and there's no, upstairs here and she would go around looking for the stairs and she would go around bang, literally banging on the wall to see where are the stairs and you know it was it was so weird and you know unfortunately then the tipping point for me was one day she had a shower and i was trying to get her to um to to get to get dressed and to get dry and get ready and she got very angry with me and she picked up the, the wet uh, diaper that she'd been using, the pull-up diaper that she'd been using, which was wet from you, you know what, and she hit <laughs> me around the face with it and she ran screaming into the living room, naked, oh shouting, call the police, call the police. And I said at this point, I can't take this, I can't deal with it anymore, you know, I cannot control her, I cannot help her you know there's nothing I can do you know she's just out of control and so my wife my daughter and I discussed it and we agreed and then luckily we found this very nice small which is only five minutes drive from here and we were very fortunate we found it and they took her in there and she's been there for two years now now do they where she's at do they do activities and oh yes that, oh yes okay they have a so person in charge of activities and uh, every morning they do some sort of physical activity. They sit them all in a big circle and they kick a ball, big yellow ball around, you know, and then they, they have um, drawing. Some of them people do very good drawing, you know, not so much drawing, uh, pages with a picture on which you fill in. You know. Right, coloring. Coloring, exactly. And my wife doesn't, isn't able to do that, but she, what she does, she, uh, my daughter-in-law made a worry blanket for her, which she's got used to, which she likes to play with and feel, you know. And then um, she has books in English, which we take, uh, basically children's uh, nursery rhymes. And she looks at the nursery rhymes and she likes animals and she looks at the animals, you know. I bought her a book, uh, or somebody bought her a book, uh, full of photographs of animals. And, you know, you turn the page and there are lions and there are seals and ba all, all baby animals. And, and, you know, she every morning I would give that to her and she would look at it, you know, and she would go through it. And I, I'm not sure how much she really understood, but she, she seemed to like it. And we would read her nursery rhymes and things like that. There's some books you might want to check out. They are available 
on Amazon. They're called Two Lap Books. They are designed for people with cognitive impairment. Oh, that's they're, interesting. They're, they're not a story. They're um, about 14 by 11 inches. I'm a photographer, so that's, a, that's, that's my, my measurement is photographs. And each page is very brightly illustrated with- Sounds very good. Yeah, they're great. There's three of them. I have two and my mom actually really enjoyed them. And when I brought them to her, you know, in her residence, yeah. she had a friend who always carted around a paperback. And I never knew for sure if this other Diane, my mom's name was Diane and she befriended another woman named Diane, which was super confusing for my mother. And then for a while there were three Diane. So we had oh Diane, other Diane and other, other Diane. <laughs> Just because it was, you know, my I would say, oh, where's where's your friend Diane? And she's my mom would say, I'm Diane. I'm like, I know the other one. <laughs> it was, it was confusing. confusing. Yeah. So she she actually could still process language by reading. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of the book, it talks about how to use the book. And so she's reading the book. <laughs> she's reading the how to the read. Yeah. It's so funny. Um, I'll try to remember. To, I'll email you the link to. Well, I, I appreciate it show. because my son is always asking me, what shall I bring or what shall I send? You know, so that would be ideal because he's happy to get those books and send them to me. I would very much like that. Yeah, they're, I love them. Yeah. I would show them to you, but I oh, think sorry, they're don't downstairs. Worry. Don't worry. <laughs> but it's good to know because it's difficult to find the right kind of book because if it's got too much writing in it, she... She can read English still, but she sort of peters out. She loses sort of interest because she doesn't understand. She can't get the meaning of the whole thing together. So she sort of loses interest. But as long as it's got some writing and lots of pictures, she's happy. And, I think it's uh, basic sentences like there's an older woman sitting in a chair in the sunshine. And I think the one, I think there's only one sentence or maybe two maximum per page. That's and it'll good. say something like, I love, I love to sit in the sun with the sunshine on my face or something. It's really basic, but because it's brightly colored and there's a lot of contrast in the colors, it's, it's easy for them to process That's visually. Exactly, yeah. And, um, you know, there's pictures of like little kids holding grandma's hand. So it's like my mom, I don't know why I never thought of baby animal books. That was it's like, well, I'm still learning things, even though now uh, I can't do them with her. Yeah. Um, but she was very resistant to anything that was childlike. So I'm not sure uh, children's books would have been helpful, although that's a good thing to try. Uh, My mom liked yeah. to be a helper, which was frustrating. I was, I'd spent months trying to figure out how to allow the, the residence she was in to let her quote unquote help so that she was less combative, but not make more work for them. And uh, I never did, I did not find that solution before no, mom difficult. passed away. That's difficult. But one of the main things that I did for my wife while she's in the home is music. We bought her earphones with like 500 songs on them. And, you know, and, and on a small uh, disc. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, whenever I went there, I would put these on her before I left and turn on the music and she would 
at first she would say, take those off, take those off. But then once she heard the music, she would, and then she would start singing along. She used to sing in a choir. She had a very nice soprano voice. And she used to, for years, she sang in a choir in our, in our area, in uh, outside Washington, in, in Bethesda, Maryland. And um, so she would sing along with these, this music. And so everybody's doing their own thing, coloring and so on. And she's singing along, you know, completely oblivious of what's going on around her. And she, she, she directs. So she's singing along and doing this, you know. <laughs> uh, it's quite funny in a way, but, you know, it keeps her occupied and she enjoys it. Now, my mom was always into talk radio. I think oh. if she was one still alive and had her wits about her, I think she'd actually really enjoy podcasts. And I did play her mine occasionally, yeah. but I never used headphones, which is definitely better because it, it kind of puts it right into your brain. There's less distraction. Yes, less so distraction, yeah. if your loved one doesn't respond to music, like my mom, my dad would listen to music at home, but mom would have a, talk you know daytime tv talk show on in the back of the house and on each end of the house essentially so as she went about her chores she would hear the talking and then she also listened like if she was sitting in a room doing something sewing or working on some of my dad's business she would listen to talk radio so i know she would like podcasts but i never could figure out how to play podcasts for her that you know, I should have played mine as I was leaving. That, was, that would have been a really good suggestion. But the problem is that if it's something that you have to follow over a period of time, then my wife just loses the, the meaning of it. She loses the, 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 the connection. And, and mm -hmm. then it sort of just becomes gibberish. That's why music... I'm just wondering if, the, if hearing my voice would have been soothing. That might be true. That would be true, I think, yeah. Hearing well, something for somebody else to try, I suppose. But the, one of the problems is my wife recognizes me and my daughter and my son because we're in constant, we were in constant contact with her. But she doesn't really know who we are. You know, she, she doesn't connect her children as they are adults to the children she had. And she would mm -hmm. often ask me, Jack, where are the children? You know, and I would say, well, they're grown up and they live somewhere else by themselves now. And she would say, oh, you know, she really didn't quite comprehend. And then on several occasions, she asked me, strange thing, she asked me, how many children did I have? She didn't remember. And she asked me, you know, she said to me one day uh, when I was visiting her, she said, we should get married. <laughs> well, at least, she's, at least she picked you a second time. <laughs> My mom always thought I was her best friend and I, I was kind of lucky because over the course of about three years, I lost a hundred pounds. So I was fairly certain that she did not recognize me because I was overweight for 20 ish years. Yeah. And that was during the beginning in the middle of her disease. Yeah. So as she got into the later stages, the person that I am was not the person that she remembered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was always her best friend and she'd tell everybody, oh, I've known her for, for a really long yeah. time. And I would laugh and say, oh yeah, you think like maybe 53 years. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it, so she, and she knew and she trusted me. So this whole not being able to visit is really difficult for everybody. Um, I only had to deal with it for two weeks 
And I was beginning to get to the point where I was about to just say, you know, I have been locked in my house. I have not seen anybody or gone anything. I am coming over there because I was concerned my mom would forget who I was completely and then not trust me. And then we'd have even more issues, but mom fixed that for all of us. Yeah. And then there was something else I was going to say, oh yes, right before Thanksgiving 2019, I was taking her to my house um, to pick up her winter clothes. And I know people laugh because, you know, we're in California, so you really don't need those, right? And, mm. and I had I had separated her closet, even though it was small, and she didn't have a ton of clothes. I separated her clothing into like warmer weather and cooler weather yeah. so that there was less choices because in 2018, every day, every Monday when I'd go and visit, she had the same sweater on. And I finally got to the point where I asked the staff, is she giving you a hard time about changing clothes? And then they, one day they said, oh yeah, and showering too. And I'm like, oh, that explains some other things. <laughs> so I took like half of her clothes out and they had a lot less issues with that. But we were driving to my house and I'm asking her, what would you like to do for Thanksgiving? And she kept saying, well, you know, whatever Chuck wants to do, my husband wants to do, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, what do you want to do? Well, I need to talk to her. No, what do you want to do? And I finally said, do you want to spend time with your daughters? I don't have daughters. Oh, my God. Okay, thanks a lot. (laughs) Fortunately, I was used to it, but she remembered her brothers. She's the oldest of four. Mm. And so it's her, the two brothers, and her sister. And unfortunately, she didn't remember her sister either. I don't know why she always remembered the guys. But it was just funny that she eventually lost the i had sons not daughters that was weird that was a really weird conversation (laughs) yeah things do sometimes get very weird yes yeah they get all mixed up and and closer to the end and this is the one thing that i've realized since mom passed away is that you're so even though she was in a care home and i would go once a week and then spend the rest of the week trying to figure out how to solve some of the challenges she kept presenting all of us when you're in the midst of taking care of somebody it's like you cannot see the forest for the tree you're just so focused on them that it's very hard to see the rest of reality because my husband kept saying you know because i kept saying i think mom's got two or three more years now this was the very beginning of 2020 my mom passed away on march 31st so i kept saying "Eh, i think mom's got two or three more years which she might have if she hadn't broken her leg But my husband kept saying, I don't think so. She seems really worse than I think you're acknowledging. And I think that's one of the challenges is it's like you really don't have a clue how bad it really is until you can take a giant step back. And that's coming from me who she was in, like I said, she was in a care home. Yeah. So it's it's really, really hard because she started hallucinating. And I suspected that. And that was like in February. So I always, I always said that, uh, you know, putting somebody in a home is the last, the final step. You know, I, I would never do that unless I was absolutely forced to. But then, and as I said in my little write-up that I did here, that you have to learn to accept when the tipping point comes. You know, you have to be open to the, 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 the probability that at some point you're not going to be able to deal with this yourself and that you need professional people to do it. And, you know, let's face it, in the home, she has nurses, attendants available as a doctor on site, you know, um, not all the time, but most of the time, you know, and, and the nurses are very, very um, 
sympathetic you know they they deal with them they they're very friendly to the to the patient so you know i think that that's very good and and she seems to have lost most of her aggressiveness now she still is aggressive at times she will refuse to do things and so on but you know i think she's much better off there than she was with it it's interesting because you're saying how the nurses are so patient and stuff and my mom drew blood on people she would scratch yes they cut and draw nails. blood in in the place where my wife is they cut their nails regularly and and oh. also do their hair and keep it very short <laughs> they have an, so that's that's one thing that's really different is because of the potential for cutting the nails and maybe cutting the skin and getting an infection yeah they don't do that now they did trim my mom's nails once but I don't think that technically that was allowed. And I really? carried nail clippers in my purse because yeah. I swear you'd think I just did that and they'd be, you know, half an inch yeah. long. Yeah. And then they, because she was also attached to an assisted living community, there was a, a salon gal there and she was great. She would go the memory care, pick the gals up, go and do their hair and all that great yeah. stuff. That's well, it got to the point where my mom's like, I'm not going with you. Or she went the last time, she went without me the gal texted me and said mom's not willing to go and we'd already gone through mom didn't go the day before but it, i we foolishly made the appointment at lunchtime so i thought it was after lunch but there was no yeah. flexibility on the timing so when lunch was a little late it screwed everything up that's what so the happens. next day yeah yeah so the next day she went down to get mom and mom didn't want to go and then she convinced mom to go and then mom said no you're not going to you're not doing anything to my hair. You're not doing anything to my hair. There was a series of text messages back and forth. It was so frustrating. She she finally got everything handled, hair trimmed, washed and cut and everything. And after that, I was like, I, I can't have this nonsense. I mean, this woman basically had two appointments for you and got paid for one. This is not, this is not okay. So it would be nice if the other thing that I don't understand, and I don't know if it's just California or the United States in general, but I don't know why these communities don't have doctors on, on staff or on call. Cause man, taking my mom to the doctor was the worst headache for the last yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. The doctor was a pain in the rump. She was a pain in the rump. I was like, yeah. I don't need this. Yeah, We had a serious problem with my wife's teeth. She needed a, mi a minor operation on her teeth and we took her refuse absolutely to let him look and, and so on so he recommended there's uh, the 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 um ear nose and throat and at the local big hospital they um they do um sort of operations on on, on mouths and so on and they deal they can deal with they they, they actually sedate people who, who aren't cooperative we, we, we were recommended to that. So we took her there. The first time we took her there, she refused to cooperate. But they said, don't worry, you know, bring her back like in a week's time. And we made another appointment. And then this time they, they were ready for her. You know, they were prepared. So they did the, the operation and, and, and she was okay. There was only local anesthetic, but she didn't feel anything. And they somehow persuaded her to let them do it. And... Um, so it was lucky that this was done just before she went into the home 
but we had to go through this whole rigmarole to you know to have this done i can't remember what the detail of it was but it was really quite a, a an exercise the process was worse than what needed to be done <laughs> yeah so you know uh, you asked me at the beginning about differences between the states and in israel well it might help to know that Israel for many, many, many years was run by a labor government, a basically a socialist government. So they had very they have very strong laws of protecting workers and so on. And so that has helped a lot. But fortunately, Israel opened up and became more of a capitalist society. So now it's more capitalist than that, but still things hangover. Now, a few years ago, the government, the Israeli government decided that it would be better for people to stay at home than to be institutionalized. That's the law that enables people, as I mentioned earlier, to get caregivers in their home to look after them. And that costs a certain amount of money, of course. And the government, in order to make the system work, um, subsidizes a portion of the cost. So in my case, and I think this is usually the case, when you have a full-time carer, 24-7, they paid 40% of the cost, the government. And Now, when she went into the home, of course, the care, we didn't need the carer anymore, but the home, all homes, all, um, uh, what do you call them, uh, residential homes and and and, and uh, nursing homes and so on are run by, are controlled, although they're private, they're controlled by the Ministry of Health. So there's a maximum price they can charge, which at the moment is 15,000 shekels, which comes to, I believe, $4,200 a month. That's the maximum charge. Which is about the baseline for us. Yes, yes. So, so it, but the, see, of course, look, the, the States is a much more, uh, people earn much more salaries there by a factor of two or three on average for a given job, but also the, 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 these costs are less. So it sort of works out in the end because if people earn less, they pay less, but it's in proportion, it's the, almost the same. But it's definitely more expensive. I know coming from England, I also know that in England it's much more expensive. So what thousand to four thousand two hundred a month in England might cost ten thousand a month, and in the States might cost twenty thousand a month or, or something like that. You know, crazy prices. Mom was she passed away on March thirty first, starting April first, her rent and care fees would have been a little bit over seven thousand. She was at between fifty six and fifty seven hundred. Yeah. And then, because she was evaluated every March, so March twenty nineteen, she was evaluated, and things were still fairly simple and easy. Mm -hmm. And then May, June, all the way till her passing, she just kept getting more difficult and more combative. And then she fell and broke her leg. Yeah. And when we brought her back to the residence on March 12th, we just, I, I told the, the director, the memory care director, I said, I know we need to do mom's evaluation. She goes, well, I have the paperwork right here. And I'm like, oh, shocker. And so we just filled it out. And they were, she was quite generous on 
if if there was kind of a question on does mom need a little bit more help or a little bit less help she'd kind of err on the side of a little bit less because it kept the price down a little bit um but she jumped significantly just because there'd been such a change in the 10 months mm -hmm. so that's you know it's and it's unfortunately cost prohibitive for a lot of people yes absolutely. my dad had my dad had investments they had their social security oh yeah and then we rented out her home until yeah. i should well, i should mention that here if uh the the ministry of health if you uh, if your spouse or a member of the family goes into a home you can apply for a subsidy so although they limit the price you can also apply for a subsidy for that price i applied but i was turned down because i you know have earned enough money and i own this house and i own uh, an apartment the our apartment in natanya so they said no you don't qualify but that's fine i i didn't quarrel with that because the amount is not too much and by the way for that amount this includes all drugs all medication is included they because the doctor is on site and she takes care of all the medication so i'm no longer liable i don't have to have any responsibility for getting her medication and giving it to her and anything like that it's all taken care of there and if the doctor there decides that she needs to see a specialist they arrange it they get a van and they take her to the specialist and the specialist sees her you know so i don't have to do deal with any of that now that's that's another very positive aspect of the situation here. and we need to shift our our residential care home communities to that yeah. i didn't have to worry about mom's medication because it was ordered and shipped online so the whenever they needed more of whatever they would just put an order in through this one company and then it was delivered to mom's residence so mm -hmm. the, I, there was no middle i was not the middleman on that right. so that so it was a direct delivery yeah exactly i mean i did pay the bill but it was also a mm -hmm a direct withdrawal from mom's bank account so i didn't have to worry about that either mm -hmm. but the, the the government was not involved in that at all but the whole oh the doctor part because they would call me and say well we think mom's got a uti and i learned real fast that that was not what was going on with my mom because i went through four or five appointments with you know to getting a urine sample which was not easy and uh drive you know going from my oh, house yeah. to pick her up back to the doctor which was literally a mile a mile slightly like three quarters of a mile away from my house so it was like back and forth and back and forth and she would get agitated and i don't know if it was because i was concerned about you know picking her up and getting her there on time and i tried to make sure that there was a lot of flexibility because i knew if i was tense she would get tense and then it would just go all wrong I've never really did figure out why she was okay with the dentist, except for once. But I, maybe she didn't like the new doctor. I don't know what it was, but doctor visits were a nightmare. And it and I spent parts like a significant amount of February trying to find an in-home concierge doctor service, which they do have here in the states, that would come in and take care of her. Unfortunately, those companies function in the big cities not out here in the suburbs oh, where we're at, uh -huh. which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because i mean it does and it doesn't 
the one company that I contacted, I was like, oh, these guys sound great. And they were like, well, you know, check back with us in a few months and see if, if we're servicing your area. And I'm like, it's, we're about 50 miles northeast of San Francisco. So it's like, okay, well, if you're servicing San Francisco and Oakland, it's going to take months and months and months to creep out that 50 miles to get out <laughs> here, you know, because then the next biggest town over is Stockton and that's yeah, not that's the biggest mile, town. Yeah. Quite a way. So, you know, it's like, we're way out here in the, in the boonies. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I, it's it's not gonna be it's not gonna happen for mom because i figured she would be gone before that happened little did i know but yeah it's just not having a doctor in the community was a nightmare yeah it seems to me that uh my wife naomi is much better cared for in this home because she has a doctor on site she has nurses there anything happens you know they're they're there if there's a need for a doctor, or if she needs to be to be taken to the hospital, the emergency, or anything like that, they will take care of it. So, you know, and I not so luckily I don't have to deal with that. So I found myself with a lot more time. So I applied to the local university, and I became a visiting professor of chemistry at the local Ben Gurion University. So I've been, you know, it keeps me occupied. I do things, and it's 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 good. It's important because yeah. we have to keep our brains active yes. and learning and doing. Absolutely. Or else, Absolutely. you know. The key thing. Although I don't think necessarily doing that will stop you getting Alzheimer's, but it certainly helps you to keep active by being involved in using your brain in doing things. I think that's very important. If it slowed it down a year or two, just think, you know, it's worth it. Just, it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, especially now my mom had younger onset Alzheimer's, so it it still would have benefited us because maybe my niece and nephew would have gotten more. My daughter got all the good years with my mom. My niece and my nephew, my nephew's adopted, so um by the time they adopted him, she was already in the later mid stages. Mm -hmm. And my I do recall my sister basically telling my telling me she had to tell my niece why her grandmother kept asking the same question over and over again when my niece was like six, mm -hmm. which would have made my daughter 20. So my daughter really benefited. My sister and I are only four and a half years apart. So the fact that the kids are so far apart is kind of interesting. Yeah, I should, I should, I should mention that my daughter, Miriam, whose um, surname is green, Miriam green, uh, she has a, a blog uh, which she writes about uh, her mother, about my, my wife. It's called um, The Lost Kitchen. I like that title. It, it comes from, the, from the, something that a doctor told me once. He said, if you go into the kitchen and you don't remember what you went in there for, that's not Alzheimer's. If you go into the kitchen and you can't remember what a kitchen is, that's Alzheimer's. So that's why she called it the lost kitchen. I always heard the same analogy with car keys. If you can't remember where you put the car keys, that's just forgetfulness. Yeah. If you forget what they're for, that's a problem. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any last tidbit of advice before I let you go? Because I know it's getting really late in Israel. It's, it's not even lunchtime it's, no, here it's in California. Only, it's nine o'clock. It's not so bad. But, okay. I went uh, the wrong direction on the timing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's later than earlier, right? 
Um, well, I was thinking it. Well, I I didn't. I added twelve hours, not ten. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, so um, I I don't really know what to say, except that you have to accept the situation. Accepting the situation is the hardest thing, especially at the beginning. And once you accept the situation that you're in this situation that, you know, there's no point in complaining that, you know, I didn't sign up for this. And, you know, this is not my wife anymore, my husband, you know, this is, you have a responsibility and you have to look after this person and do, do whatever you can. And when it comes to it, you have to be also prepared to break the connection. And sometimes uh, one thing I would mention is that, most of the people involved in discussing caregivers and the situation of, of, of people with Alzheimer's are women. But actually, the people who get Alzheimer's are more women than men. So it turns out that men are more the caregivers, in a sense. Mm -hmm. But they, we have very little voice in terms of the general discussion of the situation, because men, let's face it, tend not to be so um, forward in, in discussing personal or private things. So maybe because I'm a, I like to write and I write, so I did this, but I think it's more of an exception because most of the books that, for example, our authors have listed, most of them are by women. That is true. So, you know, anyway, the thing is that as a man, it was very difficult for me to adjust, as it were, to, to having a wife but being single again. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a complicated situation. But I think uh, overall, although it's a tragedy, you know, we've dealt with it. Many people, unfortunately, have tragedies in their lives and... We, we've tried to deal with it, and hopefully we've, we've dealt with it as best we can. Well, that sounds terrific. I appreciate the stories and the advice, and I will look up Miriam's blog because that sounds terrific. And yeah, she, she's also written a book, by the way, which was published by a publisher in Oregon, as far as I remember, and it's also called The Lost Kitchen. And um, just, just an anecdote before... Actually, her book and her blog came out of a discussion, discussions that I had with her, because when my wife got Alzheimer's and I couldn't cook, and so I was calling my daughter all the time about how, well, what do I do? How do I cook this? How do I do that? And out of that came her book. It has recipes in it as well. So, so uh, it, it produced something useful in the end. Well, there's a lot of us caregivers that seem to turn to finding some, we create something, we write a book, we create an app or right. podcast. Right. I think that's really what I find very interesting about this community yeah. is how many of us create something out yes, of this. Yes, it's like a response, a, mm -hmm. a, a personal and necessary response to the situation we're in. Yeah. Very nice talking to you. One Alzheimer's diagnosis and three creative responses. I'm not really surprised. That's just part of the caregiving community. If you'd like more from my personal caregiving community, check out our website, sign up for our email newsletter, where you'll get 
quick tips, funny memes, cute dog photos, and more. And as always, I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday.